Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Kyunga Park, Head of Environmental Markets. It's my honor to welcome Dr. Michael Oppenheimer, who's among the world's foremost client scientists. So Dr. Oppenheimer was the longtime chief scientist of the Environmental Defense Fund Climate and Air Program. He was an early force in the United Nations efforts on climate change that resulted ultimately in the Kyoto Protocol. And he's also been a long-standing participant in the UN IPCC, the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, including serving as the lead uh, coordinating author of its most recent report, which in many ways really under underscored the urgency um, of addressing climate change. So thank you for joining us today, lots to discuss. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, let's start with the present. Um, climate change obviously has become, in many ways, a dire issue that's manifesting itself already. But could you talk about where we are actually with the current climate situation and why the UN IPCC really um, made the case for drastic climate action that is necessary in the next 12 years or so? Well, from a scientific point of view, uh, our understanding has progressed immensely. We can now uh, associate a particular climate event like Hurricane Harvey, for instance, with a fresh, fractional attribution of risk, that is, how much of the intensity of that storm was as a result of the buildup of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, we couldn't do that. Things are changing radically on the knowledge front. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of politics, we're much further behind where our knowledge is. Uh, there's been a lot of progress in some sense, but it's way short of where it needs to be. Governments have declared a warming of one and a half or two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels to be a danger zone. Mm -hmm. What that means to them is the risks start increasing markedly when warming proceeds to that level. How do we know that? Well, one way to frame it is that uh, society, human society is only 10,000 years old human civilization, I should call it. And during that whole period, climate was very stable. Climate, the global average temperature only went up and down by in a range of no more than one degree Celsius. We're already one degree Celsius warmer than it was in pre-industrial times now. So we've gone into a new climate zone and we don't know how society will be able to adjust, if it'll be able to adjust successfully to it. And recognizing that, the political system has been creaking into gear and starting in 1992 was the first uh, global treaty on climate change, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Mm -hmm. Then later, a few years later, the Kyoto Protocol. But the, what's missing is that governments have not committed to this issue at a level that they commit to economic health or national security. And until that's done, until it's third at best, we're not never going to get the political energy together to solve the problem. That means we're going to wander aimlessly into the climate danger zone, and there's going to be a lot of trouble for every country. But in 2015, right, the governments came together and actually reached the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm -hmm. Notably, obviously, there are countries that are saying that they're going to pull back. But for the most part, we have over 190 countries that have committed to the Paris target, which is what you referenced. 
two degrees or ideally a below one and a half degree goal. And actually Goldman Sachs was present there lending our business voice to the need for coherent global climate policy. And we'd like to see more of that. More to come. Um, but help us understand, how much are we there in terms of being able to meet that goal? And what is your probability of us being able to achieve that one and a half to two degree goal based on what you know today of climate science? So the thing to understand first is that the Paris Agreement, as good as it was as a first step, mainly because it got all countries on board, uh, 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 putting on the table things that they intended to do over the next 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, those are interim obligations. They won't get us even halfway to where we need to go, although they're a good start. And we see that, for instance, in this country, yeah. there's a lot of trouble even getting the willpower together to meet that first obligation. In order to really avoid a warming of, say, two degrees, we would have to cut emissions from the greenhouse gases, think CO2, by the middle of this century by something on the order of 25 to 50%, percent, depending on whether you want to get to two degrees or one and a half degree, in the face of immense growth still projected to occur in developing countries. You can't get into a box of a trade-off between development for countries that haven't gotten there yet and controlling greenhouse gases. So the trick is going to be finding a pathway economically, socially, and technologically that allows countries to do both at once. That's not easy, but technology is evolving very fast. We have on the table already commercial, everything we need to do to get a big start on the problem. And you know we'll see. I, we, we don't know at this date exactly how committed countries are. Some are very committed now. Will that last for 20 or 30 years? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So people have often talked about climate change and other environmental issues as the tragedy of the commons, right? Mm -hmm. And um, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney actually also phrased the terminology tragedy of the horizons given the time dimensions of what you're talking about. Um, yet at the same time, in many ways, the climate change implications are materialized not in terms of only the physical weather patterns, but there are lots of implications on the economics, the financials, even social security issues. Can you talk a bit about what you're observing around climate science and the implication and the connectivity to these? So let me say, first of all, that just the median climate change that's projected, a, a warming over the century under business of usual of something between two and five degrees Celsius is bad enough. But hidden in, the, in that are embedded what you folks have taught us to think of as black swans. That is things that have high uh, outcomes that have very high uncertainty and are associated with very high risk. And for climate change, that means, for instance, will a large part of either the Greenland or an Arctic ice sheet or both start to disintegrate rapidly and cause a sea level rise by the end of the century that instead of being a couple of feet is a couple of meters? Uh, will the warming cause the permafrost in the north to start to uh, disintegrate, deteriorate, and emit a lot of methane into the atmosphere. Methane is a potent greenhouse gas. Maybe even more complex, how will people respond to rapid climate change? Will they respond in an anticipatory fashion, move to protect themselves? Or will they say, well, you know, we'll worry about this later, in which case, disaster, social fragmentation, 
conflict, these are all possibilities. Same with that the come migration on the table. challenges. Yeah, I study human migration in response yeah. to climate change. We've got some of those challenges already here. There's more going to come in the future if we don't keep the warming within reasonable bounds. So, um, how much have we really come? I mean, you talked about how the governments, although we do have the Paris Agreement, aren't necessarily stepping up yet, and it may not have the longevity that we need to be able to address this in terms of decarbonization that you mentioned. Are you optimistic? How much progress have we really made? Uh, optimism is a you inherited or something. I don't think it's rational, frankly. Yeah. So yes, I'm an optimist, so you should discount everything I say a little bit because of that. But the way I look at it, if you want to take the, the, the biggest view, is are we in the run-up to um, World War I, or are we in the run-up to the nuclear arms race with the Soviets? In the latter case, we managed to muddle through. We managed, despite all belief that we were in a, a struggle, a death struggle. And you know, I, when I was a kid, I was jumping under my desk at school because we were practicing to be nuked. Uh, and you know, it was a, a reasonable thought that we were all going to die before we were 15, basically. It didn't happen. It didn't happen because governments started to think about how they could avoid a catastrophe. They had mutual belief. And although they couldn't stand each other otherwise, they found mechanisms to, to if not completely solve the problem, the still potential is there, yeah. to at least bring it under control. They muddled through, and that's what I expect will happen in my optimistic side with regard to global warming. On the other hand, we have other models of human behavior. World War I, the countries knew exactly what, they were, what was gonna happen. They, uh, if not the scale of it, uh, they, some of them enthusiastically ran for the brink, others maybe a little more cautious, but no one said, hey, let's pull the plug on this before it gets out of control, and it did. So humans have the possibility within them to act either way, mm -hmm. a, a total global catastrophe or trouble, but not trouble that's not manageable. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you today for sure we're going to wind up in the muddling through, but it's manageable model, but I'll bet on it. Okay, so I hope you're right, so we're not gonna hit the catastrophe level. But um, talking about ultimately governments coming together and actually taking action when it comes to air emissions, we talked outside uh, while we were waiting about the acid rain program and mm -hmm. the ozone depletion issues. How is it that we were able to address that, but climate change is so much more difficult? So Any insights coming out of that? Okay, ozone depletion was a similar global issue Mm -hmm. And countries uh, studied it for about 10 or 11 years after it had been hypothesized. There was no observed ozone depletion yet until the Antarctic ozone hole was discovered in 1985. They had already begun a diplomatic process before the ozone hole was discovered to try to rein in the, the emissions of the chemicals, the freons that were causing the problem. Though cooperative action had started, but it was kind of moving slowly, the ozone hole was discovered. This gave it a little extra kick, you might say. Mm -hmm. And countries very quickly after that reached the Montreal Protocol, which started the process of completely eliminating these chemicals. Mm -hmm. Now, the difference between the cooperation that could happen there and the cooperation under climate change is that uh, uh, Freons involved a relatively small industry, at the time $30 billion industry. There were three countries, Germany, the UK, and the US, that where the big producers were. 
And so it was relatively easy to develop a solution that engaged the interested parties in a way where they didn't think they had to go out of business. So you didn't have the developing countries and their development needs playing in as much? Yeah, so that's the second thing. Yeah. China and, and, and India were emerging developing countries that were starting to, I'm sorry, were countries that were starting to emerge with the capacity to produce the chemicals. Mm -hmm. And so they developed a treaty that had good uh, incentives, carrots and sticks, to enforce participation and compliance in the treaty. What were the carrots? They set aside $2 billion to help fund the transition on the part of developing countries. They then uh, um, instituted, not, never, never uh, actually imposed, but implemented the possibility of trade sanctions. If you produced CFCs, we won't buy them. If China produces CFCs, we won't buy them. If China produces air conditioners, that contains CFCs as the coolant, we won't buy the air conditioners. Mm -hmm. If China makes circuit boards and cleans them with CFCs, even if there isn't one drop of CFC on the circuit board when it comes into this country, we won't buy them. The toughest imaginable sanctions, in fact, for that sector. And it worked. China has not cheated. Uh, India has not developed a domestic capacity. Uh, there was a little cheating by the former Soviet countries as the Soviet Union collapsed, but the threat of trade sanctions pushed that down and it never really got serious. But it's much harder to do all that with climate change. It's not a $30 billion industry. Yeah. It's a third of the, you know, it's some big number of the global economy. I can't remember the number yeah. right now. I mean, in some ways, people think about it as large in energy issues. But when you think about it, it really is pervasive across pretty much all of our economic system. You know, I kind of think about some of the transactions that we've helped our clients with. And some of it pertains to uh, taking kind of waste and manure from cows, from dairy which is a potent form of methane, and how do you actually take that into a clean energy source, as an example? So there are technology solutions, but we often right. forget that climate change is a much more pervasive issue across the entire economic right. system. It, 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 as you say, pervades everything. So it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And really, a lot of people say the only way to solve the problem is impose, say, a carbon tax across the board. There are political obstacles to doing that. So actually implementing a solution involves a lot of different uh, regulatory steps. It involves a lot of different widgets that have to be developed by industry. The good news is the energy sector is being revolutionized right now. It is, It's yeah. part originally because of the drop in the price of natural gas, which is driving coal out. Now big drops in the price of renewable energy, which is allowing renewable energy to penetrate globally, not mm -hmm. just in the United States. We don't know how fast that's gonna go, but you know, in a, in a smart world, we would find ways to facilitate that transition, make it occur faster. Mm -hmm. We gotta get on modernizing the grid. We have to do things that will help the immense developments in storage capacity, uh, advanced batteries essentially, to come online. And it would be good to help encourage the development of renewable energy, even though it's not gonna need much government help from here on out. Mm -hmm. You put those three things together, together, you could have a modernized grid, an efficient energy system, you could, you could afford from an environmental point of view then to electrify motor vehicles, and you'd have- And industrial systems as well. And the industrial, yeah. you'd have essentially solved the problem. It's gonna require some new technology that isn't commercial yet, particularly in terms of battery storage, but there's a lot we know how to do. We know how to fix the grid. That's a governance problem. It's, yeah. not, it's not a technological problem. And, and I come back to your point about optimism where 
what we're seeing in the market is the technology innovation curve is incredibly fast and even faster than most market projections. And even in battery storage, we've seen some estimates where in the next five to seven years, many are predicting that it's gonna be economic enough where you are gonna start seeing more mass adoption of things like EV and storage within the energy grid system. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, hopefully those projections are right. Yeah, and, and let me add one, so, so a lot of the problem are political and policy obstacles. Number one in a lot of countries is of course getting rid of subsidies for fossil fuels uh, because, you know, they're probably a bad thing to do anyway and they're certainly getting in the way of solving the greenhouse gas problem. Yeah, so it's a good segue to talk a bit about some of the policy and politics around this and of course the Green New Deal have captured the imagination of many. Can you talk a bit about your views on the Green New Deal? Um, what do you think is gonna work, it's not? Green New Deal yeah. is a, a very good organizing uh, point. It's mm -hmm. symbolic and it gets people activated in trying to push the politicians to solve the problem where previously they had nothing to grab onto that they could say when the politicians say, how am I gonna do it? Green New Deal. Now, it's not very specific. But what is interesting about it is it tries to make the philosophical point that solving global warming could be done in a way that solves a whole, or it contributes to the solution to a whole bunch of other problems. It's not just a burden on people. Mm -hmm. It can be done in a way which makes life easier, especially in a country that has a lot of social and economic stress in it. Climate change, solving climate change can be viewed as a route to solving at least partially, some of those other problems. But if you could figure out how to do design a policy system that could come together to achieve these goals, um, any views on what that would look like? Well, in the ideal world, yeah. there would probably be a price on carbon. Mm -hmm. um, we don't live in the ideal world, in case anybody was confused about it. Yeah. In the real political world, it's a hard sell in many countries, especially mm -hmm. our country. So what we're probably gonna do, I would say, if we ever get serious about the problem, is adopt a mixed system which some, with some pricing in there, uh, with some uh, standard command and control regulations, mm -hmm. which are probably inefficient, but people like them, probably because it hides the cost. Mm -hmm. And also people are never convinced that the cost just gets passed through to them. And they're probably right in certain sectors of the economy, they're not totally competitive. So the price gets stuck up with the producer to some extent. And then the third thing are performance standards. Mm -hmm. And when you put those three together, you get a system which will get the job done. It'll probably cost more than if we had a carbon tax or a cap and trade system, but at least it'll get us started and we could aim for the ideal as we're learning along the way. So for instance, the regulations that EPA passed under Obama or the state uh, renewable portfolio standards that have brought in a, an immense amount of renewable energy very fast in some states, like where I work in New Jersey, um, those are kind of steps along the way, but ultimately, yes, I personally would rather see a price on carbon. I'd like to see that money returned to the people who are paying it, and through that set of incentives, we'll start getting the price. We'll start getting carbon dioxide down.
got it. Um, so let's talk about the role of business. I mentioned um, how companies are increasingly making the business case around the need for addressing climate change and environmental sustainability. In many ways, because there's also growth opportunities, like clean energy is growing faster, for example, than conventional energy in many uh, countries around the world. Um, and also investors are very much hungry for uh, sustainable yield opportunities and doing more allocations to ESG and responsible investing. So the business case around this is becoming more compelling. What would you say in terms of what more can businesses do, particularly in a collaboration with uh, scientists as well as um, you know, some of the broader partnerships that you're seeing starting to form? Business can provide leadership and mm -hmm. that's where I think business community needs to step up. Mm -hmm. It's basically fractured in its attitudes about climate change. But really, there are very few firms that are willing to take the risk with other irons they may have in the fire with whoever is running the country to step up and say this is a problem that really has to be solved mm -hmm. and that we are going to keep an eye on our own business operations in a way that don't worry just about the next quarter, but worry about the long-term viability of the planet for the mm -hmm. human adventure. You know, the reason I do the political side of this too sometimes is not just because I happen to be interested in policy, but that I, as a scientist, feel a professional obligation to get out there and contribute what I have to the benefit of society. Mm -hmm. People who are very good at business, in my view, have an obligation to give something back. And giving back would, be, would mean run, take, using the influence that you as a whole, not necessarily any individual or some individuals do, that you in the financial community have as a community, using your influence to push policy in, in the right direction, using your influence internally in your own firms to make sure that every decision isn't what's gonna happen in the caricature in the next quarter, mm -hmm. but you really do look for the long term so that's what I'd like to see firms and individuals doing. Step up, you have influence, some of you have power. Some of you do step up, but there's basically a gap there. I mean, I've been actually doing environmental markets work for um, 12 years, so I'm kind of dating myself. And what has been incredibly exciting to see is that um, you know, sustainability has become really core to each and every one of our businesses and you know how we think about allocating capital and how we actually um, engage our businesses is very purposeful in terms of trying to help address key societal issues including climate change but it is a journey um, and certainly there's more that we can do and uh, we will do as we uh, continue this journey um, so appreciate your candid yeah. thoughts and for the provocative thoughts that you're leaving behind with us today so thank you for joining us please thank you for having me join me This podcast was recorded on April 22nd, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, 
The receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.